Hi everyone. Uh, Hello. Well, Bridget and I are from uh, the School of Design at Swinburne University of Technology and we also here represent the Centre for Design Innovation which is the research centre that belongs to our faculty. Uh, because we're very kind of visual people, or at least I am, and can't really talk without slides, uh, we came up with a, another way to run this thing. And we're basically going to run a, a mock interview. And we're gonna run, into, uh, run this interview with uh, a couple of personas. So these are our personas tonight. So I'm... Um, I'm Walter Benjamin, or Walter Benjamin, as other people know. And him. I'm Amber from 2030. So I'm from 1930, and I'm, I'm Walter, and Bridget I'm is from 2030. And we're going to basically ask each other questions about the present. So I'm coming from the past, and I'm asking coming from 15 years from now. Exactly. And um, this idea basically comes from the fact that um, Walter Benjamin before he committed suicide in 1936, um, had an unfinished project where he asked lots of questions about arcades. And we kind of thought that arcades were sort of the beginning of what today we know as a branded environment. So you'll know a little bit more what all of that means. But branded environments, um, what Volta kind of says, began in the arcade. So we're kind of going to go back in history and sort of look at how branded environments come about. And all of the questions that um, Walter will be asking Amber actually come directly from questions that Walter Benjamin was asking back in 1930, reflecting on the birth of the arcade. So the questions are literally sort of transcribed from Walter Benjamin to kind of show you that here's somebody who was so prescient about the future and how that might connect to today and how branded environments have come about. So that's the background of what we're doing tonight. Okay, so we'll get started. I'm going to put Walter down, but this is him. You just have to pretend. All right, so we're going to start with boredom. I was thinking about boredom the other day, probably so that I could avoid being bored, and how boredom didn't really exist until the age of industrialisation. Because before then, people didn't actually have time to be bored. Then we had this thing called the middle class that sort of came about. And not only do we have boredom now, but we have to do everything possible to try and avoid being bored. And I've often found that when we're bored, it's only because we don't know what we're waiting for. And that boredom expresses our superficiality or our inattention. But what if boredom were the threshold to great deeds? And what is the opposite of boredom? Does it have to be fun or is it merely distraction? Well, maybe it's the filter bubble, that thing that isolates you from information that's different or challenges your particular worldview. Maybe it's normcore. Uh, that plethora of hearts and smileys and emojis and likes and high scores. If I think about this question in the present, coming from 15 years from now, um, then there are distinct, many, many different uh, and distinct scenarios and possibilities that brands could face through the next 15 years. One I'm going to talk about is double or nothing. Now in this scenario, because it is a scenario, it's an imagined future. Future doesn't exist. It hasn't been created. So there are options for brands moving forward, whether it be 
brand physical or immaterial or, or material and working into branded environment. But in this particular scenario, double or nothing, we can imagine that the US has pushed ahead with a high carbon, high growth model, while the rest of the world looks on in dismay. There's water shortages, crop failure, and a loss of land to rising sea levels that is sparking fierce global competition to secure supplies and develop alternatives. There are new frontiers being opened up, but particularly for resource extraction, particularly Antarctica, and GMOs are a mainstream response to food crises. And there's discussion now about food crisis um, and human security that involves food. So how will consumers respond to this increasing prospect of crisis and conflict? How are you, as people living in this present, responding to those crises and the conflict that there are around you? Are you going to be looking to brands not just to satisfy your needs now, but are you going to be doing that in 15 years from now as well? And what does that do with the connection to a, an environment that a brand might create? There's also the question around stability in the face of rapid change. And if there is that question now, then brands could gain further strength um, so that governments maybe rely on them and are forced to call on them in types of crisis to spur collective action, of which we are seeing some things at the moment around collective action and collective thought. It's basically a world where there is opportunity for brands and branded environment to win trust through transparency and integrity, which is quite different from another scenario, which is the networked world, where government power is declining and the economy is struggling. And if you refer to traditional metrics like GDP, it's actually pretty dismal. Um, but there is this informal peer-to-peer -peer economy that's thriving, uh, maybe mostly thanks to digital sharing platforms, but also thanks to things like distributed solar, subsidised energy storage and the rapid spread of disruptive, disruptive technologies for manufacture. Regulation and taxation are unsolved problems and state revenues are losing out. But in this scenario, brands could be profoundly disrupted by piracy of consumer goods, which is disrupting a lot of consumption now. And this is not just what we know in the digital world, but also clothing and furniture. And if you look back a couple of years to the emergence of Silk Road um, and the strength of certain copy brands uh, coming out of Asia, this is, already, this is definitely happening now. Um, so what happens when the consumer, you in this day and age, uh, no longer care about the real McCoy? What does that do to the, to the brand that you used to trust and have um, attached value to? What does that mean for the branded environment that they're creating? Particularly if that copy is just as good. It's practically a clone of the original. A brand's going to be forced to move closer to niche cultures to forge that standout identity. Of course, we could be talking about a scenario like, like our predictive planet. And in this scenario, many countries, particularly the US and China, are transitioning towards renewable energy and a less materially intensive economy. It's also facing um, the race uh, with countries like Russia and India to innovate within digital technology because in this kind of scenario, technology is one of the things that is going to save the world. Knowledge is power um, and the likes of and digitised technology, things that are related to the quantified self, are really ruling the world. Um, there are wearable devices which are emerging right now and already being worn. Who thinks that Google Glass is something we're going to have in the next five years? Um, it is there, um, it is around, and wearables are being discussed very broadly. So this is about um, having a, a brand, whether it's technology-based or not, that is your friend for life. Um, it could even be your PA and replace some of the other devices that you have. 
It basically spots the gap in your life or your diary and raises activity or thought um, that supports the desired energy levels for you to be able to go through the things that you want. It might even help you out in telling you what you need from a finely balanced meal. Um, and there's a drinking cup that's been released as a pre-order called Vessel, which does exactly this. And it's designed to keep you hydrated and monitor what is it, it is that you've consumed during the day that contains liquid so that uh, you can determine whether you've had nu enough nutrition and hydration just from that, um, that container. It's V-E-S-S-Y-L if you want to have a look. Um, in this instance, maybe retail starts to become invisible. What does that do to a branded environment in 15 years' time? Particularly if we've also got compromises in privacy, uh, and that's questionable given that the next generation coming through really loves this idea of a tracked and quantified life and finds the idea of something like Big Brother rather quaint. Yeah, well, privacy as a notion or even as a concept that may be invaded or not invaded, um, well, I thought really that didn't really exist until the 19th century. Um, so what happened is we had all of these plush private interiors of the middle classes actually became public spaces and they became public spaces in the windows of the arcades. So is that a bit like that Big Brother thing that you were talking about? A little bit, but I am thinking more about the quantified self and brands like Fitbit that are available now. They're definitely part of this developing frame. And what's to say that Fitbit isn't its own branded environment in years to come? Well, look, let's follow on from the boredom thing. I was reading a bit of Nietzsche last night, um, and that sure stops you from being bored. Uh, and I came across a piece about the constant search for eternal novelty. Uh, there are those who'd like to force eternal novelty on the world, but what if the world actually lacked the capacity for eternal novelty? Well, maybe the notion of eternal novelty, novelty is evident in the relentless branding and rebranding of organisations in, in this present, along with every other product and service that thinks it needs to stand out. It's a never-ending stream of apps and startups and next big things, social enterprise, jams and stuff to save the world. It's bigger and brighter and shinier and it's retweeted and Instagrammed for posterity, or at least as long as it takes to unlike something. What I read about most from that era, that era being your era, is the influx of data analytics and big data. Um, back then, it was often said that by 2030, brands would be seeking out users rather than users seeking brands. Brands would be increasingly playing a positive role in society by developing healthy products and services and connecting communities and individuals to promote mental and physical well-being. Brands and branded environments are ensuring health and wealth and human prosperity. Gamification is part of this. It's been popularly espoused as a means not just for entertainment and novelty, but for the mix of the virtual and the real, the reward, the incentives and the fulfilment of human aspirations and goals, and also trading entertainment and competition and data for special discounts and promotions and elite services. Of course, the end of traditional retail has long been mooted, and I would argue that looking back 15 years ago, retail was very high on the list of ideas being offered. Subscription services and home delivery and brands were already knowing what you need and when you need it. So that was being anticipated in 2014. So going to a store itself maybe becomes superfluous. Shopping malls and arcades could be quite different from what you know. Responsive brands have also been hypothesized, again, mostly reliant on big data. And what the data says, customers demand. There's no doubt that fluid brands have been suggested, driven again by data and increasingly directed by the consumer brand interaction. In a similar vein, the concept of brands actually in itself becomes more fluid and adaptive, 
bringing suggestions of actualizing brands, things that are strongly values driven and also generated by the crowd and that collective notion that you were mentioning before. These brands are connected to human experience and they're particularly driven up by the bottom-up customer aspiration, not unlike the brands that are steered by ethical spending and investment and an expecting rising proportion of, it, of consumer spending that's particularly coming out of emerging markets. It was also said a lot in 20, the early part of 2010, 2011 and on that crowds and crowdsourcing would start to define brands more than relationships. So by 2030, a, a defining characteristic of at least the previous decade would be these relationships. Personalization is expected to become more important than loyalty. So that the branded environment is actually something that's keenly alert to individual needs and preferences and interests. And this would definitely be important if the world went through another GFC. Post-recession consumers want quality and savings as much as they want meaning. One of the biggest ideas that I read about uh, going back in the past was e-commerce just becoming commerce, losing that little e at the beginning. Automated logistics was anticipated as a huge shift. Convenience and availability, not impulse, was then the driver for consumer purchasing in that future, with branded goods an exclusive differentiator between sales conduits. So what are these branded environments Well, to that come? would be telling. Huh. <laughs> uh, there's one more scenario in which these brands exist, and I can't tell you what is going to come because it's all anticipatory. It doesn't exist, as I said earlier. But we also need to consider some of the more dystopian options for brands, something like a Rust Belt renewal, so that you've got a very expensive, resource-scarce world. Um, in this scenario, large economies such as the US, again, because it's still dominant with its economy, are benefiting from a resurgence of local manufacture and agriculture. Increasingly, though, um, people are self-organising to satisfy their needs. They're seeking out strong connections close to home, sharing and making what they can. So consider this maker culture that you may recognise from what's going on around you now. Um, anonymous peer-to-peer -peer transactions make it easier for consumers to buy direct, cutting out that middle person in retail. So what is the cost of brand environment then? This does, however, make it easier for customers to buy direct. Um, and then maybe brands become redundant. Um, maybe they have to work harder to add value in a community of makers. Don't know. Depends on what the community decides. But they could also play a role in overseeing and regulating resource use, which we're starting to see in agriculture and manufacture already in, in 2014 from my observations um, 15 years out. There's very much a sense of you can do this yourself, but we'll help you make sure that you can do it again tomorrow. Well, you said this thing called e-commerce. Um, does that mean that people don't go to boutiques and in arcades anymore? Well, how do they find out what the latest fetish commodity is? My well-thumbed copy of Marx's Dust Capital has this stuff in it about how commodities become fetishized. Like a table, right? As a thing, it's made of wood and its value is about the material it is made of and how it was made. But then when a table steps forth as a commodity, it takes on another kind of value, which is social or immaterial. Uh, the table now has to stand in the face of all other commodities and do something to distinguish itself, like, you know, stand on its head or dance. Well, why not? It could also be integrated and offer you something like a connected game into your body and mind. It could just be the game that you immerse yourself in. But 
all this thing about this table doing this, it made me think that there must be a disjunct between the material value of a commodity and the social measure of its value. That it has a kind of ghostly objectivity that leads a life of its own. Is this the power of brand at play? Possibly. And people do go shopping in 2014. Retail is therapy and a kind of religion, and there's no disjunct anymore. The power of brand and the creation of meaning, that's from people. Um, and how they engage with brands is how it's determined. And it's the engagement with brands within branded environments that starts that function of new meaning within very extraordinary ways. Even this space that we're sitting in tonight is starting to be part of a branded environment. And the, the other thing to remember is that brand is neither material nor immaterial. That disjunct has completely disappeared. Um, particularly in another 15 or so years, where branded environments have made that possible so that that disjunct is, is um, completely inevident and the things that we have integrated within our bodies and our approaches and the way that the world has evolved means that we're not just talking about spaces anymore, we're talking about things that are really physically um, and digitally integrated within our human behaviour. Well, look, I'm from the past. I mean, I'm in 1930, and it's a bit hard for me to think about how a physical environment could become immaterial. So can we just rewind a little bit in history? Because um, um, that's where, I'm, where I think. Um, and look at how the desire for commodities has shaped the city. Uh, from my understanding and my readings and all the things that I wrote in this these fragments of mine before I died, it kind of happened via arcades. It happened through mirrors and it happened through advertising. So for 19th century Paris, going to the arcades wasn't just about purchasing the necessities of life. It was about displaying wealth, status, belonging, values, beliefs in the things we owned, and the glass-roofed, marble-walled enclosures lined with the most elegant shops became a city within a city. Does that happen with those things you people call shopping malls? If I go to a shopping mall, and I'll think about one that has become very popular in the last few years in Dubai, um, I can spend the morning eating foods from around the world in the middle of Dubai out of a 40-degree desert. Um, I can maybe go ice skating and then I can go and see a movie. I can go through the Sega game world um, and then I can do some more shopping and then I can go ski, uh, skiing in an indoor environment. Yes, they are pleasure palaces. They are places where I can display my wealth um, simply by the way the space itself categorises different brands that are on display. Oh, so these shopping malls, a bit like our 19th century arcades, are kind of the hollow mould from which the image of modernity was cast. Um, these were these places where the middle classes saw themselves and gained satisfaction for their newfound status, which essentially came from the social value of material objects. So people were actually branding themselves as a class through the clothes and homes and the things that they bought. How is this different from your experience? I'm not sure that it is. But it does seem to me, sitting here in 2014, that a lot of what are called products are valued more for their aesthetics and their assumed desirability than for their function, form or utility. Well, that and was the same for us in the 19th century. And sadly, as I look back from 2030, what I see is that the things people once called useless were in the early part of this century very much valued above the useful. That's the fetishisation of brands, the desirability in commodity and the era that's basically brought to you by brands. 
Um, this is anything from branded content, branded places, sponsors, and everything else in between, as long as it's found in a quick search using a particular device. We can look at the move into retail, retail therapy, shopping as a hobby, a pastime, the way we shop for identity and construct identity with the brands that we wear. Status and well-being is gained through the brands and the places that we engage in. Selfies and technologies display our engagement with those worlds. And I really have to wonder, if we're told that brand is everything, then when was the human mind replaced by the internet? Well, this thing, that what you were just saying actually then made me think about the other way in which the desire for commodities changed the city. And it occurred to me that at one point in Paris in the 19th century, suddenly mirrors were everywhere. They appeared in cafes, in restaurants, in shops and in salons. And then even the eyes of other passers-by became mirrors and reflect back, reflected back what we saw of ourselves. Everybody was watching and being watched. All the eyes of all the social classes, whether they were climbing up or climbing down, were on the immaterial attributes of material objects in the material space of the city. How is that different for your century? I'm not sure that it is different. Uh, maybe then there was just no means to capture and play back every moment. There were none of those selfies or those Facebook updates and those shares and those tweets and anything else that we do. There certainly wasn't the Instagram opportunity. But there was art and there was literature to capture those experiences. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, I've read quite a bit of Proust and I think Proust managed to write a book about this long, just about how to capture the past and how to capture very specific moments of his life and the people around them. So maybe Proust was um, yeah. the late 19th century Instagram. <laughs> and maybe that's the material expression of the physical environment that has moved to experience. The online, digital and Instagrammed, the shared and the reposted and the liked, is a culture of clicks nurtured by convenience and technology. What I'd like to know though is, back in the 19th century, mm -hmm. who were the protagonists in this tableau? Was it the yummy mummy? Who were the sinks and the dinks? Did we have grey nomads, hipsters and rebels? Well, I'm not quite sure what these terms mean or who these people are, but I can tell you that in the 19th century, suddenly the streets became inhabited. And that happened through the simple technology of the gaslight. So people could actually roam the streets and just inhabit the streets as the dwelling place of the collective. So gaslight kind of changed everything about how people could inhabit streets and inhabit um, urban spaces and look at each other. And then who were the people? Well, the yummy mummies, um, I guess they were women who were in the streets. So before Gaslight and before all of this birth of the arcade and the, and, the, and the way that the domestic interior had become a public interior in an arcade, the only women in the street were street women. Um, and then women could actually come out of the interiors wearing on their dresses the very same fabrics that they upholstered their sofas with and actually interact socially in the salons and in the cafes and all of that kind of stuff. So that was the women. And then the men that were in the street, they were dudes like Charles Baudelaire or even um, Proust's character Charles Swann. And this was the flaneur. Uh, so Paris was the promised land of the flaneur, actually. And this is a guy who just wandered the streets aimlessly in a kind of vanished time. He was sort of in a reverie um, of his childhood or his past. And 
For him, walking around the city was just about the aimless walk around the city. It wasn't really about looking at the shops or, or, or looking at the smiling women and the bistros. So maybe what happened is that Paris became both a real and a virtual landscape for him. So maybe I do get how an environment or a built environment can become immaterial by the way that the flaneur wandered the streets of Paris. I'd like to follow up on something you said before about um, the, the gaslight. Yeah. We've had a number of interventions looking back from where I've come from in 2030, which I'm not going to talk about. But I would like to talk a bit about advertising because you brought that up before. Tell me a bit about advertising. Well, yeah, that was also driven by technology. And for t technology for us is, you know, things like gaslight and the four-colour printing process. So suddenly, because of technology, um, the urban environment changed again. So there were mirrors everywhere, but there were advertising posters everywhere. Hmm. Uh, and that made me wonder about advertising and how it kind of wakens a kind of um, collective dream consciousness that both architecture and fashion belong to. Does that connect to this idea of brands and branded environments that you've been yeah. talking about? Absolutely. Sometimes we're literally surrounded by brands, not just in advertising, but in the environments that reflect the colour and not beyond the insignia, but that the presence of the brand is literally material around us. But a branded environment is defined as the extension of the brand and experience into a physical material world. And more and more that is starting to connect, and particularly as we move towards my time of 2030, it's going to be into that immaterial world. The intention and purpose of branded environment is to deepen the experience and engagement with a brand because we have to understand that a brand is more than a logo, obviously, but it's not just the spatial experience as well um, where brands are expected to flourish. It's beyond the three dimensions into the possibilities that a brand can explore. And thank you. That is our discussion. Now that was yeah. entertaining and informative <laughs> for you uh, and we'd like to take any questions either about the world of um, 19th century Paris as told in 1930 by Walter Benjamin and how much of it really is still present in um, present and future branded environments or um, anything about all of those half the words that Bridget said that I didn't even understand. Um, <laughs> people have questions. We love questions. I have a question. One of the issues I think is um, the, the notion of the tag. The tag. The hashtag? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And that the dirty underworld, if you like, the half world. Yes. Which has existed all the time. Mm -hmm. It existed in Paris then, and it exists certainly in Wales. And it goes up and down depending on the economy, of course. But, um, but, it's, it, it, but it's, it's very. So the question was about the underworld of, of hashtags. The dirty, the dirty world of, of hashtags. The graffiti tag? The tagging. Yeah, yeah. tagging. So 
tagging. Oh, tagging by graffiti artists. Tagging. Not yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, tagging. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Possession, ownership, claiming a space, branding it. Oh, yeah, sorry. We, we need to ask people to um, ask questions from the microphone. Sorry, okay. I forgot. Um, That's good. We've got disagreement. Dissent is the only place where, you know, you, you must have dissent in order to have a conversation. Well, so. I can tell you that the 19th century artists tagged the environment through the posters they designed, like Toulouse-Lautrec and all of his posters for the... Um, for the shows at the Folie Bergère and all of that kind of stuff. So artists actually went out of the galleries, um, safe in the galleries and out into the urban environment and almost tagged the, the, um, the streets and the lamps and all that kind of stuff with their posters. So that, that was kind of happening And you may there. find there's people who would argue that the, the visible elements of a brand are like a tag, that we're really beyond seeing a brand on everything that notion of the world being brought to you by brands, some people will disagree with it. I'm not here to say whether it's good or bad, but um, to have everything endorsed, embossed, featuring something, and good branding is when a brand becomes seamlessly integrated and you know you're in a defined space because of the characteristics um, that it presents and that, that immersive element is, is just all pervasive. But at the same time, um, it, the, the, the brand itself can be the dominant character that not everyone is going to appeal. It becomes a form of pollution, and tagging can be both. It can be positive, it can be negative. Yeah, I understand, but yeah. what I mean is, um, branding is owned. It, it's a commodity. Who is it owned by, though? Well, company or whatever. I would argue it's owned by the people who attach meaning to it. Okay. Yeah. 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 Brands are, are never, yeah, brands are never just owned by the custodians. When I first started in design, that was the argument. We're the brand custodians. We know all about this. We're the ones who are going to manage it for you. No. Um, there was the, the, the brands who started to learn that it's the customer, the person who engages with it, who, who buys it, who uses it, who attaches meaning to it. They're the ones who are the true trustodians of the brand. Well, it depends on how much you engage and how you choose to engage. And it, is it always going to be driven by money? At least two. Yeah. Well, we may have alternative forms of currency. Yeah, <laughs> Bitcoin may be the way we trade. <laughs> and well, water could be... Um, the, the notions of scarcity, um, some of those things. Yeah, this, this could be thousands of dollars worth of refreshment. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, on part of some of my other sort of travels through the 21st century, I haven't just been in Melbourne... Um, I was also went to Los Angeles and found a rather interesting form of branding um, on, um, I think his name is Frank Geary, an architect at a concert hall, um, named after someone else called Walt Disney. Uh, so that's kind of a brand, I think, and Geary's kind of a brand. But there was a whole other process of branding going on that um, bits and pieces of handrails and steps and benches were being named after Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, the third junior. And so there's another kind of branding going on with names. So it's a kind of tagging, but it's a tagging with the money attached to it, which 
allows these kinds of things to happen. So lots of brands were going on at the, that concert hall as well. I heard a very nice recital of um, Marlowe as well <laughs> while I was there. Yeah. Branded. Can any, I, any other questions? I, Please. Well, one comment. Um, um, you talked about gas lights. My understanding too was that in the 19th century, one of the reasons that women were able to go shopping was, of course, the introduction of public toilets because pre prior to that, mm -hmm. there were no public toilets in cities and mm -hmm. so women were kept out of the public realm. Um, and it took a long time to get there because there was all of yep, these crinolines and hoops and layers of um, fetishised lace and velvet to get to the... That's just the men. Um, the other so thing yes, I wanted to point. talk about was, um, the, I suppose, the, the, the privatisation or the branding of public spaces. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about, I mean, one of the things with this space is we tried to keep any branding out and the architect would be very upset with the poster. To have poster. a Nietzsche and cat Correct. Up, here. Um, up there. Um, but, you know, when you look about, and we had, I had a, a, recently a visitor from Paris, and she worked at Le Louvre. Um, she did fashion exhibitions. And she was very surprised by the amount of um, advertising for the Gautier exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria. Um, she said she'd heard that the amount of advertising which was spent on the exhibition was $2 million. She said for that amount of money, she does two exhibitions, you know, she does her, her entire exhibition program, is paid for for that. And it's interesting the way in which culture and arts have embraced advertising and embraced branding to such an extent. My thought is that part of that is about obviously communicating and trying to convince people that it's, used to go, it's great to go to cultural events. But so much of it is also about the fact that the sponsors of those events demand a physical branded presence. Yes, absolutely. And that, 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 that the association with the destination, with that particular location, with that environment, um, means that, the, that there is so much or perceived attached value to a space that those sponsors want to gain what they can. They want brand exposure. I'd also argue that some of that is based on more traditional models and expectations um, rather than maybe what consumers want. And it, there are other ways, and I think this space is a really good example of a space that has a distinctive character that aligns clearly with it, how it's expressed digitally, how it's, ex it's expressed in print. There are subtle touches that bring cues together that express the values and the care of the brand and what it's wanting to give to you sitting here. So some lovely cushions and some rugs. There's something that captures the essence, the very heart of that brand in the way it's brought together in the space. But I don't see any huge glaring signs that say M Pavilion, get it here. There's a lovely piece of signage there. There's a lovely, more subtle piece. We, you can find your way here without being bombarded with what is essentially visual pollution. There's some great advertising out there, don't get me wrong. And I think also probably what will happen in the future, presumably, is that people will value spaces that are unbranded. That would be a lovely future, <laughs> but it's only one possible future. It depends on whether it's perceived as the preferred or plausible future. Always the uh, cat amongst the pigeons. <laughs> I would argue that Sean is a brand in himself and that that would have a lot to do with a lot of people coming here. Sorry to say that, but I mean, it's wonderful. I, I'm not saying it's a bad brand. I love Sean's work. It's fabulous. Well, your work is very good too. 
But that's uh, you when, don't need any pats on the back normally. Maybe there yeah. are tensions between the, 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 the levels of brand that operate within branded environment because we're not just having this brand that's expressed spatially here. There's the competing brands around us. I am looking at a neon Jean-Paul Gaultier sign. Um, when you think about the brand of the architect versus the space, which brand transcends the other? Does that depend on the I position of the observer? I think it attracts two different audiences. Maybe it does. And maybe sometimes they cross yep. over. Yep. But I'd be really interested to know what advertising is like in your, at your end of the spectrum in 2030. It'd be maybe. very interesting to see how personalised it gets and how much the, how the quality is improved. Maybe it attaches using RFID or some more advanced technology that I can't talk What's about. What's RFID, sorry? Remote frequency identification. What so is the it? minute I get near something, it identifies me, it recognises oh, me. That. So I've got RFID that. on my phone and it's a three-year-old phone. But from someone who's been, I've spent many years in advertising. I started in the very early 80s and advertising was a wonderful place to be back then and it's gone through a, um, a period now where everything's about the the cost of everything it's not about the quality of the message and it's about um, strategy and research and getting a message across and branding and the joy has gone out of it so I'm wondering where you think it's going in in the next 15 years it's going to depend on you as the generation living in the present so it will get it will be determined by not necessarily, it will, it will depend on your responses to emerging technologies because, and this is a point that was made at a presentation last week, technology will only shape us if we allow it to shape us. So if we don't like advertising, we stop responding to it. Oh, I, I don't if think we advertising don't is going. I'm just, I, 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 oh, not I about imagine it going. it's going to become far more personalised and far maybe. more specific to if each we, target market. If we give over our data, maybe. Well, we're, we're doing that now whether we like it or not. Maybe we're not. Google thinks I'm a man in my, mi my late 30s. <laughs> <laughs> right on the money. Yeah. Great costume. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I died in 1936. <laughs> <laughs> You've Google got no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. This is where this photo yeah. comes from. <laughs> Any, anyone else like to come up to the mic and ask a question? Um, I just wanted to talk about um, branding and the construction of identity, mm -hmm. but I wanted to sort of focus on the millennial generation who will be maybe in their 40s in 2030. Yeah. So they're entering a world where construction of identity is really important to them and it's being, you know, it's being done through Instagram, Twitter, and basically branding is important from the day they're born. So I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on authenticity and branding and how moving forward as people with um, meaningful connections, how do we establish that when our sort of online brands or personal brands are so constructed and influenced by the branding around us, which can only become more influential and how, how will the millennial, millennial generation, like I'm just interested in that sort of idea as a person who was alive when Instagram wasn't around. So, and, and just seeing how important it's become to construct business personalities, personal brands. Maybe the word that I'm picking up on is construct. Yes. 
because how we're constructing how our you construct is do very you, if yeah. something is authentic is it constructed is it designed is it created is it selected is it purposefully put together or is it simply allowed to be and unfold and emerge well all identities yeah. are constructed in one way or another i mean the identity of um, the middle class in 19th century paris was a construction i think i think identities are always some form of construction and they can maybe merge and shift. You'll construct one bit and then see what evolves and develops out of that and then you'll yep. do another bit of construction and then we all have our different personas for different contexts as well. So the identity of me as Walter Benjamin is not the same identity I'll have in half an hour's time or I had half an hour ago. So, I mean, I think traditionally, or at least from the time that I was writing about in the 19th century, um, identity has always been constructed in one way or other. It's just the mode and the processes may change and evolve, but the, the actual event, I guess, of constructing identity, I think that pretty much runs all the way through. And maybe the technologies and the conditions that we allow to shape that construction. So perhaps that is going to be dependent on what you choose to allow in and what you choose to allow out. The, the wariness around what you actually post online and what you say and the traceability and the transparency and maybe it's not hiding behind technology despite it being a very significant part of your life. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's using technology in a different way and using it to um, as, as a thing to leave behind occasionally rather than being so attached to it. It's a necessary part of life, but if it's serving a purpose, stick with it. It depends on whether that purpose is serving you. Cool. Great. Thank you. Anyone else like to quiz us on these things? I don't do predictions. I am actually a qualified futurist, which is really scary, but a futurist doesn't do predictions. All we'll talk about is potential con conditions. I beg your pardon? It's a memory for you. A memory for me. <laughs> and that would be giving the game away. <laughs> Good. Well, no other questions? Well, thank you. Thanks for coming. I hope we managed to take you on a journey of 100 years. <laughs> Say bye. Oh. Bye. That was translated. <laughs>